Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. Also in Berlin this time, in fact, in my apartment when I record every week, is Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor. Hi, Adam. Good to see you. We're going to have dinner after this, but uh, first business, then food. So we're only going to be doing one data point today, and that data point is $78.8 million, which is the amount of money that the film Napoleon earned in its first weekend at the box office. Those are the international box office receipts. Stars in the latest cinematic tale of the notorious military leader and French ruler, Napoleon. The new film is directed by Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott Scott is taking some heat over perceived historical inaccuracies in his new epic film, Napoleon. Napoleon has been described as a deeply clumsy portrayal with a lack of historical accuracy. Well, here's what... It was directed by Sir Ridley Scott and obviously is focused on Napoleon, the French leader in the 19th century who not only became the first post-revolutionary leader of France, but also swept across the continent with French armies creating an empire across Europe before experiencing his own downfall. But I guess to start off, Adam, I know you you saw the movie. What did you make of it? I'm struggling because I... It seems silly to say, but I believe this is the worst film I've ever seen. I, I believe it was the most offensively bad film I've ever seen. And it's so much so that me and a friend who were there, also a historian, admittedly, just couldn't bring ourselves to sit through the whole thing. And we left halfway through and I've never, ever done that before. It was so unbelievably bad at, I think, at every level, maybe except visually. It's It's quite... You know, they spent quite a lot of money on recreating late 18th, early 19th century France. They've reproduced some of the David, you know, the famous David portraits of the of the of the Napoleonic era quite effectively on screen, you know, which you'd expect from Ridley Scott. But at every other level, it seems to me just a unless you know any Napoleonic history, I can't see how you could possibly follow the film. And if you do know any Napoleonic history, I don't really know how you can stand to stay in the film. I mean, it's so, it's it's just, I mean, at the level of sense of historical period, I would compare it to something like Bridgerton. Like, it's not attempting even like one of the classier Jane Austen adaptations, many of which are really quite serious historical drama, I think. Or even, in fact, Ridley Scott's own first film, which was Duelist, which is a famously successful an aesthetically effective representation of 18th, early 19th century culture. This is just at the level of dialogue. It's just staggeringly bad. Effectively, what we're being asked to believe is that Napoleon, a deeply cultured, widely obsessively reading man of his period, was essentially a kind of mafia underboss. He doesn't have the menace of a, of a you know, Joey Soprano. He doesn't have the menace of, you know, the godfather he really behaves like a like a thug, like a street thug. The the sex scenes are kind of risible and kind of grotesque. It's not very erotic, and the military the military history is just flat out staggering in its failure to convey the essential elements of warfare in the period. They have eighteenth early nineteenth century troops of the line in trenches. Austerlitz, which was the moment we left, which is this epic battle fought against the Austrian and Russian armies, is reduced to a skirmish between relatively small groups of units 
The thing about Napoleonic warfare that makes it historically significant is that Napoleon maneuvered entire armies on a giant scale. So if you wanted to convey, say the way that, that um, Saving Private Ryan does, convey the drama of D-Day, very effectively conveys both the small group action and the scale, the epic sweep of the entire landing, you would need to convey what Napoleon which is, is doing, which is maneuvering army corps, the entire Grande Armée, in military maneuvers on a huge scale. And with computer graphics, we have the resources to do that now. And historically speaking, say when the Russians made, the Soviets made war and peace, they literally used large contingents of the Red Army to recreate that. There was also a very famous adaptation of Waterloo, a film made in Waterloo in the 1970s and 80s. And to do this properly, you really need to actually register the scale of war as it was fought then. And this film just, just doesn't care. It's basically just various types of CGI that you've seen in all sorts of other war movies. There's no effort to actually capture 18th, 30th, 19th century warfare in its essential elements of line and column and square. Like, it's... It's as though a bunch of people who really have no interest in military history whatsoever made a thuggish, mafia-style adaptation, because he's Corsican, of somebody who actually transformed the way in which modern warfare operated. And so it's as though you made Oppenheimer, but sort of confused Oppenheimer with somebody who was going to drop a bomb out of a right flyer, and, like, and then said, oh, it's about a bomb. You know, it's a, it's a kind of fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of what made Napoleon interesting. It sounds like it, it, sounds like it could be a critique of despotic power. I mean, you know, you're describing this. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen the movie. You, you know? could entirely see how you could do that, but it would require a level of storytelling. You know, I don't know, the way that Amadeus, for instance, conveys Mozart as this, you know, this randy teenage boy, and you're like shocked and you go, I've never seen it like that before. Well, that would require are completely different, or, or Bertolucci's accounts of Italian fascism that make it appear like a sordid, sexually depraved regime. Incredible, you know, you, you're totally sucked in. It doesn't, it, I think it's trying to do that. I think they're trying to give us Napoleon as this, this kind of crude Corsican upstart. But for start, one of the staggering things about it is it's all in English. Like, it's as though actual France, with actual French people in it, doesn't exist. So you make it with just the kind of identity actors from the American and the English casting list. And, like, Jack in Phoenix speaks with an American accent. Everyone else in the film is speaking with an English accent. I think the idea is that they're supposed to be conveying that he's a Corsican and therefore his French was heavily accented or something. But why not have a French actor? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it does ultimately sound like Ridley Scott was not interested in Napoleon per se at all. And then you wonder why not just make up a story or pick another figure or something. But yeah, it does seem like the resonance of Napoleon is the actual history. And if you're not going to care about the history, then what are you doing at Profoundly all? Profoundly paradoxical kind of exercise, I thought. Yeah. Well, then let's try to engage in some of the actual history then. I mean, you were discussing, I mean, Napoleon is obviously remembered as a military genius, a, a man who changed military history. But this is an economics podcast, so I thought I would ask whether he was also a significant economic reformer. You know, uh, I remember from my own European history classes, the Napoleonic reforms transformed France into a, a, a more modern society to do the same for its economy. I mean, and, and what to make of the fact that this kind of modernizing economic reforms came from someone with no apparent interest in, in democracy at all? I think Napoleon really does stand as one of the sort of original early 
authoritarian modernizers. I think that's maybe the best way to think of him in that context. Faced with the chaos of financial conditions and inflation left by the revolutionary period, which had relied on the issuance of paper currency, so-called assignats, to fund the uh, projects and the wars of the early revolutionary period. In 1800, Napoleon issues orders for the foundation of the Banque de France, the French Central Bank, and then in 1803, in April, he orders the issuance of a silver and gold-backed currency, which then becomes known as the Franc Germinal. And this is the anchor of France's currency system, really, for the rest of the 19th century and into the 20th century. So France becomes a hard money, metallic-backed currency system from that moment on. Um, In the same period, the early 1800s, the directory period, Napoleon also sets up a series of legal commissions, which then draft the famous Code Napoleon, which also has a commercial element, which is issued and enters into force in 1804, and really founds the basis for one of the most uh, enduring legal frameworks in European history. It's a so-called Roman law code, so it's not based on precedent and the court ruling of judges, but on the issuance of fundamental principles of law which are enshrined in the code. And this too is one of the legacies really of the Napoleonic era, which which have a profoundly enduring impact on not just France, but on many of the European territories which France conquered under Napoleon and went on to adopt the code, notably, for instance, western parts of Germany. These, I think, in the in this era, rather than thinking of like short-run economic policy in the way that we do today, these sorts of institutional systems are really the the anchor of um, Napoleon's economic legacy and its enduring legacy. He also built a certain amount of infrastructure. He was obviously very interested in roads for the marching of armies. These fell more easily into disrepair, but a monetary system and a legal system are really very important. In terms of economic policy and the way we'd understand it today, notably with regard to trade policy, Napoleon's legacy is much more ambiguous or his impact was much more ambiguous because we're in Berlin today. And in November 1806, shortly after defeating and destroying the Prussian army in battle in October 1806 at the famous climactic battle of Jena Auerstedt, Napoleon marched in triumph into Prussia and having effectively conquered at that point all of Germany and brought it under French control, he uses Berlin as the location to issue the Berlin Decrees, which are the foundation of what's called the Continental System, which is Napoleon's effort to blockade the British economy into submission. So in 1805, the French Navy had suffered a catastrophic defeat at the hands of the British at the Battle of Trafalgar. So the possibility of a naval blockade of Britain was impossible. So instead, what Napoleon decides to do, having conquered all of Germany and France, the Netherlands, having all of this under his control, he decides to declare an economic blockade of Britain. And that really becomes the cornerstone and the most impactful policy pursued by the French Empire towards Europe from that moment onwards. It basically means that Europeans are no longer to buy British textiles because the British Industrial Revolution has already been rolling by that point for several decades. Cheap cloth from Britain is the the principal import and bales of cheap British cloth are burned ceremonially across Germany in the wake of the Berlin Decrees, declaring this, this first ever modern 
economic system of modern economic warfare. And it's ultimately over the continental system and Russia's refusal to comply with its requirements, because this is very bad for trade of the Baltic nations. It's ultimately Russia's refusal to comply that becomes one of the casus belli between France and Russia, and that leads to Napoleon's fateful decision to invade Russia in the summer of 1812. So this continental system is is a key element, and it it has a it has a very ambiguous impact as any kind of constraint of trade will have. It's it's bad for the standard of living in Europe. It dries up the cost of living. It does, however, lead to some promotion of manufacturing within Europe. It gives manufacturing in France and Germany a leg up. It's widely, of course, regarded as as a, a mistake by any liberal economist. So obviously, Napoleon is remembered for these vast continental wars, millions of people being moved across the continent of Europe. And yeah, just basically, I'm wondering, how did Napoleon go about financing these vast continental wars? The promise by Napoleon to the French people is that the wars will pay for themselves. And Napoleon and the French revolutionary regime all the way back to the 1790s had a well-established practice essentially of forcing defeated states to pay war damages, reparations, occupation costs to France. And this was done on a huge scale. Napoleon took it very seriously in that he actually created a war fund, an army fund, into which all of these reparations were paid. And so they never really touched the conventional budget of the French state. They remained in a fund which was a sort of slush fund for military purposes. And we're talking about very significant fractions of GDP. It doesn't really much make much sense to quote, you know, 500 million francs in contemporary money. It doesn't mean very much to us today, but we're talking about 20 to 30% of French GDP, really very large shares of the available output of the time, because Napoleon's war fighting was on a scale never seen in Europe before, probably never seen anywhere in the world before. The biggest battles by the end of the of the Napoleonic Wars involve hundreds of thousands of troops on both sides. The Grande Armée, the French army, war for army at its height, numbered 600,000 men, hundreds of thousands of horses. So they're gigantic mobilizations. Some of this plunder took the form of cultural artefacts as well. The reason why Paris is such a mecca for anyone interested in art history, amongst other things, is the plunder, systematic plunder of artefacts from Italy, notably in the 1790s, but then the rest of Europe as well. And the famous quadriga, the the winged chariot, the figure of the charioteer that sits above the Brandenburg Gate was removed from Berlin in 1806 and taken to Paris, many of the treasures of Venice likewise were taken from from Venice. Famous German intellectuals of the period like Goethe wrote anxious letters to their friend in Paris saying, you know, did the treasures from Italy arrive intact? What are they like in the museums there? So this agglomeration of wealth and artistic wealth from across Europe in Napoleon's hands, in his imperial capital, in Paris, was a sensation. It was a it was understood to be a, a dramatic concentration of resources of a type that had not been seen since the days of Rome, fundamentally. Did it pay for Napoleon's wars? It didn't. Uh, by the best estimates of economic historians subsequently, we think that this plundering, which took the form of money, it took the form of artistic artefacts, it took the form of soldiers. So when we say France invaded Russia in 1812, only about a third of the army of 600,000 men that marched into Russia were French, about a third were German, the rest were Polish and various other types of auxiliaries. 
But if we ask in the end whether this really did pay for itself, the answer is emphatically no. 60% probably of the costs of Napoleon's wars were actually borne by French taxpayers and through French debt, which was made easier by the fact that they had a stable currency with the metallic-backed currency. And it was also made easier by the fact that Napoleon inherited an inflationary clean slate in the fact that the inflation of the 1790s had burned away all of the existing debts of the French state had rendered them worthless. And so he could borrow from a fresh start. At the end of the Napoleonic Wars, as was observed by contemporaries, the British state is actually carrying a larger debt burden than the French. But in terms of the the impact on the French uh, society, it was very, very severe. And the extractions from the occupied territories probably covered less than half of the, the overall cost. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right here, but we will be back in a second to continue talking about Napoleon. Yeah, so if we were to shift now to the post-Napoleonic War period, I was reading about how Europe sunk into a pretty deep economic depression after the conclusion of Napoleon's wars. And I'm wondering, was that a byproduct of the new post-war order? Obviously, the Congress of Vienna is remembered for yeah, reordering the continent. Were new trade barriers put up between states? Is that perhaps one of the causes of this of this depression? So that did indeed happen most notoriously in the UK, where the, the famous corn laws were put in place in 1815 at the end of the war to guarantee a high-priced market for agricultural production in the UK. It's also true that the decision was taken again in the UK to return to the to a metallic standard for the pound, pound sterling, which had been abandoned in the late uh, 1790s so as to free up uh, room for modern war finance and the decision is then taken in 1819 to return to gold interest rates are hiked this produces a deflationary shock it's also true that there's a very substantial demobilization of troops across europe in this period and the ripple and that you know puts men onto the labor market who previously had been paid and employed in the military all of these factors are weighing on the on the European economy and the ripples extend as far as the United States, which suffers a major financial crisis in 1819. And as far as the 1820s, the big crisis in Britain comes in 1821. It's not for nothing that um, this is a period of major labour unrest. If you read somebody like E.P. Thompson's classic on the making of the English working class, it starts in this period. The Peterloo massacre takes place in this aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, the first, you know, this first rumblings, if you like, of modern class conflict are to be found in this period. It's the period that Marx and Engels will be looking back on to a certain degree when they begin to theorise the upheavals of capitalism, which then become into full force in the 1830s, 1840s. It's also the period where we have the first sort of knockdown, drag out argument between economists in the modern sense, Ricardo, Malthus, Say's law, for instance, is formulated, the argument that uh, supply creates its own demand is formulated in this period. This is a real, the, it's one of the key moments for the emergence of liberalism as a 
as a doctrine, as a political school, is the post-Napoleonic period, and economics in its modern form comes into existence, not really with Adam Smith, who's writing in a very different tradition in the 1770s, much more enlightenment, speculative, theorizing about social development. In the 1820s, we were really seeing people arguing about the gold standard, about the quantity theory of money, about Malthus's predictions for population. It's a, it's a recognizably modern economic discourse, which is still, in a sense, rubbling through the discipline 200 years later. Is that a product of Napoleon? I'm yeah, it's a product of the crisis that yeah. Napoleon, it's a product of the Napoleonic War mobilization. But other than in Britain, which had a, at that point, already substantially urbanized economy, we shouldn't exaggerate, I think, the extent to which these modern factors are really driving the story. If you look at France, if you look at Germany in this type period, these are overwhelmingly agrarian societies. And probably the worst impact, therefore, on the economy of the period is a freak of nature. It was the explosion of Mount Tambora in Indonesia in 1815, which produced a huge cloud of ash, which basically meant that in 1816, there wasn't a summer. It's this famous year in which there's, never, there's no summer. There's essentially, therefore, no harvest. And if you really want to understand, I think, the kind of profound shock to European society in this period, it, it's probably more likely this sort of coincidence, really, of the end of the Napoleonic Wars with this climatic shock, rather than the superheated, overheated debates amongst economists which are going on in London throughout this period, which are probably driving the, the misery, the genuine misery which many European populations did suffer in this period. You know, this is one of the transition phases where potatoes start being eaten on a large quantity by humans, which wasn't true in the 18th century. When they first arrived, they were used essentially for animal feed. But it's the the pressures of the Napoleonic period, the post-Napoleonic period, which really make them a staple for European populations. I imagine there must have been some public education campaigns to teach the Germans to eat potatoes, because clearly, yeah, that, that, stuck, that stuck here. But yeah, I guess finally, I wanted to take a step back with the final question and ask, you know, should we be thinking of Napoleon ultimately as progressive or reactionary? I mean, you've described various kinds of reforms that have set the foundation for the modern society that we all live in today, uh, the various legal and economic reforms that you were discussing. On the other hand, Clearly, Napoleon was no Democrat and had this extractive imperialistic policy and was cruel and vicious in, in other ways. You know, I mean, I, I'm wondering how to, how to reconcile that and reminded me about uh, German philosopher Hegel. You mentioned the, the battle at Jena, who he observed Napoleon at that battle. And he sort of, yeah, described him as this representative figure pushing history forward is that then by definition progressive? Is that the way we should be thinking of Napoleon? Yeah, I mean, um, Hegel famously wrote to a friend to say that he felt like he'd seen the, the world spirit on horseback, right? I think the important thing, which is why I'm also so indignant about this terrible film, is that, is that Napoleon, Napoleon was a figure um, that was understood at the time to be a transformative figure in, in world history, to be a truly shocking phenomenon and not a grubby mafia underboss. Whatever he was, he was towering in his impact. Right? He was gigantic in his, in his consequences. I mean, defeating the Prussians was really the third in a series of devastating defeats that he'd inflicted on the enemies that rallied against him in 1805. So he first defeats the Russians 
And he first defeats the Austrians at Ulm, then he defeats a Russian and Austrian army at Austerlitz, and then the following year he destroys the Prussian army. So these are all of the assembled military powers of Central Europe, defeated in the space, and annihilatingly defeated. Not not partial defeats, not some thousands of men drowning in a frozen lake, but the total disintegration of their armies and the humiliating surrender of emperors to Napoleon. The most dramatic consequence of which was the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire, which was the supervening, organizing political entity, not just of Germany, but of Central Europe. Large parts of what is modern day Belgium, France and Poland were incorporated into it. It was the entity that had stopped the Turks outside Vienna in the late 17th century that had existed for a thousand years since Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Emperor in 800 was just simply given up in August 1806 because it was clearly derelict and beyond the point. So this is why Hegel, I think, sees Napoleon as this bulldozer, not because he was oblivious to the violence of the man or the violence of the wars that were being conducted, but because he was tearing up the remnants of the medieval order and just ending them and and sweeping away those remnants of of, of German power or the structure of politics which had held Germany in a kind of time warp, according to this kind of reading, for, since really the the religious wars of the the 17th century. So I think that's where we have to sort of start from. And it's not just people like Hegel, but also figures like Clausewitz, for instance, who's the preeminent Prussian military thinker of the period for whom Napoleon changes the nature of war. This is again why I'm so like indignant about like the Ridley Scott's just you know failure to understand what's going on here. Like for Clausewitz, this was the moment where war moved from being a kind of essentially plaything of princes to being, you know, the logic of history and the passion of peoples played out on the battlefield in this irreversible and dramatic way. So war becomes no longer geometry, but history, right? It becomes this transformative, dramatic force that, as he said, you know, if you if you on the wrong side of a Napoleonic battle, there is no comeback. There's no there's no way back. He describes states as losing their arms, losing their limbs, and. This didn't make him, this didn't make Clausewitz, unlike Hegel, I think this didn't make Clausewitz a, a supporter of Napoleon. Clausewitz defects from Prussia because it's aligned with Napoleon in the war on Russia and then joins the Russian troops so as to be able to fight with other German defectors on the Russian side against the invading French, right? But it, even somebody like this, a passionate German patriot, could see the world historic, the almost philosophical consequences of the sort of power that Napoleon was able to deploy. And this makes this question of progressive, reactionary, not reactionary, that just won't work as an argument, but world-changing, I think, is the attribute that people would settle on. Whether or not that's progressive or alarming or terrifying, world-changing, a force that you have to struggle with, in the, in the Spanish case, of course, this took the form of the guerrilla and, and the awful violence that Goya captures in his famous pictures of the horrors of war. But Spain, too, is completely and irreversibly transformed. The Ancien Regime there essentially swept away. Spain in the 19th century becomes a laboratory of thinking about politics, including coining the phrase liberalism, which is first used, as far as I understand, for for Spanish politics. So I guess the point to make is that there was one German historian famously remarked in his effort to write a 19th century German history that his phrase is Am Anfang war Napoleon. In the beginning, there was Napoleon. Theories like, 
almost all of the subsequent political theorizing, whether it's reactionary, restoring the Bourbons to the throne in uh, in France after 1815, bringing bringing the the Bourbon dynasty back, or liberalism in the form of positivism, of Comteanism, and so on, is all after Napoleon, right? It's all thinking through the consequences of this regime and its impact on not just on European society, on world society. If you, if, you, if you had to single out a single thing where you'd really say it's deeply reactionary, it would probably be Haiti. It would probably be the, the effort of the Napoleonic regime to restore slavery and overcome the slave rebellion. And if you prioritize, if you see that as the central axis of advance, then I think you could say this was essentially a kind of I mean, but even there, you could say Napoleonic racism takes on an extra notch. So the Napoleonic regime actually pursued a particularly exclusionary policy towards the small number of black Europeans, a minority that was spread across Europe in an age of, of, of slavery. It was particularly exclusionary. But I think there you might be, you might sort of simply say this was a distinctly reactionary regime that was aimed basically at restoring order. In, in retrospect, the, the situation is sort of, you know, by the 1830s, 1840s, there's a huge wave of pro-Napoleonic, pro-Bonapartist opinion because there's a nostalgia for the radicalism of the Napoleonic period, which becomes very, becomes very powerful in that period. If you think about the uh, Louis Philippe, the the monarchy that takes charge in in France from 1830s onwards, a cadet branch, the Orléans branch of the Bourbon dynasty returns Napoleon's ashes to Paris. If you go to Paris to see the Invalide, the tomb that is built for Napoleon, that's a, this is a revival of the Napoleonic enthusiasm of decades before by Louis-Philippe in the search of, you know, a new, a new model, a new, a new ambition for the French politics. And it's not by accident that Napoleon's nephew then becomes Napoleon the, the third, um, um, you know, from the 1850s onwards in the wake of the the third French Revolution, the 1848 Revolution. And Bonapartism becomes, for thinkers in the Marxist canon, the prelude to the authoritarianisms of the 20th century, whether they be, you know, the Shah in Iran or Ataturk in Turkey or the fascisms. And Bonapartism is, for Marxism in the 20th century, the sign of a kind of novel kind of politics which refuses straightforward class alignment and that balances in between and asserts a kind of autonomy for the political that isn't that's rarely found in well-established capitalist regimes but has a historic significance as a vector of reform and change and transformation i guess there's a theory there's an implicit theory of change there that itself is interesting you know that one needs a kind of shock or a figure or something to kind of push it's things not, forward i mean it's brutal it's very violent it's repressive napoleon operates a major secret police system across europe but um it's not the terror so there's no there aren't the polionic purges there's not the guillotine terror of the 1793 under napoleon or, for that matter, the massacre of, of the communards in 1871 in France. You know, so it's a, it's a regime of sort of ordered repression. If you were on the wrong side of the Napoleonic system, you weren't safe anywhere in Europe, other than maybe Switzerland, that the Germans would go into exile in Switzerland, or to Britain or to Russia. So it was a, a repressive regime, but not a, not a terroristic one in the straightforward sense. Military, of course, the violence was really in the war making. The, the massive violence. I guess, to be fair, 
We don't know if Ridley Scott managed to pull it pull it off at the end of the movie. Maybe yeah. uh, uh, we'll res- I, I I will reserve judgment until I I can see it. Yeah, you, um, you, you, but, if you can stomach it, oh, uh, kudos to you, man. But, you know, I don't want to. I guess uh, uh, yeah. Good luck to anyone out there who wants to venture to see the entirety of the movie and let us know how it ends. But in any case, we'll end the conversation here and be back next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura rossbrow Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.